glad you're joining us on Radio Free Georgia's In Tune to Nature program. I'm host Carrie Freeman coming to you from Atlanta in June of 2021. And today we're going to be talking about a new conception of legal rights for animals in nature with the author of the book, Wildlife as Property Owners. Just published by University of Chicago Press, a book that biologist Mark Beckoff called a game changer and legal scholar Martha Nussbaum called the most original contribution to animal law in a long time. Here to tell us about that is the author Karen Bradshaw. Let me tell you about her. She's a professor of law and the Mary Sigler Fellow at Sandra Day O'Connor's College of Law at Arizona State University, where she's also a senior sustainability scientist at the Global Institute of Sustainability. She's also a faculty affiliate scholar at the NYU School of Law Classical Liberal Institute. Bradshaw received the 2020 Stegner Young Scholar Award, an annual award recognizing an early career environmental law scholar for their accomplishments and promise within the field. And for five recent years, Bradshaw's articles were nationally recognized through a process of peer review as being among the top articles published in the fields of environmental law, administrative law, land use law, and natural resources law. Bradshaw has published over 20 academic articles, and she's the co-editor of the 2012 book, Wildfire Policy, Law and Economic Perspectives. And more recently, she published the book we'll discuss today called Wildlife as Property Owners, A New Conception of Animal Rights. She has an MBA from California State University, Chico, and she earned her law degree with honors from University of Chicago Law, where she was a law review editor and fellowship recipient. Her website is kmbradshaw.com. Welcome, Professor Bradshaw. Thank you so much for having me, Carrie. I'm honored to be here. Well, I was so excited when I saw the na- just the, even the name of the book. I, I love the concept for the book, Wildlife as Property Owners, because I've always found it unfair that due to colonialism and the dominance of Western values that humans are the only species that quote unquote own every square inch of land on earth. And those humans who are landowners, they decide to share parts of it with all of the other millions of species only in exchange for something or out of a sense of charity. And that's a very precarious position that we've put all other animals in as we don't often share enough habitat with them, nor do we adequately protect the common environments we all inhabit. And they, they really have no legal recourse. So I imagine this problem may have been part of what caused you to write the book and propose a legal solution. So to begin, can you tell us the problems with the current legal system of land ownership and our systems of designating some parks and natural preserves in terms of its repercussions for wild animals? Sure. Well, you're right. I mean, when we colonialist uh, law entered the United States, um, it adopted principles that were established in Britain, which is this tiny little island, right? Very different than the North American landscape where they imported the law. And yet the legal principles of property today are directly traceable to that colonial system Mm. of property. And it's a funny system, right? Uh, Humans created the construct of property. And it's very different than the natural world. In the natural world, we're sharing our land, our air, our water with every other living creature. And yet it, right. humans made up a game that is property and they set the rules so that only humans can own. Right. 
So the result of that, I mean, it's been really terrible, frankly, for animals. The dye was cast a long time ago with the imposition of colonial law in the United States. And then as population pressures and climate change effects have sort of unrolled over the years, what has happened is a sort of inevitable result where millions of individual landowners choose to use their land in ways that's not friendly to wildlife. Um, And as a result, one person at a time, wildlife has gradually been expropriated of its land. So the result is pretty shocking biodiversity loss. Right. And, but some people probably say, well, we have parks and nature preserves. So like sometimes we, you know, designate land for them. That's definitely true. And public lands have been the unsung hero in biodiversity preservation in the United States. It's funny because a lot of people credit the Endangered Species Act, which was enacted in the 1970s, as causing uh, many species that would otherwise have gone extinct not to have gone extinct. But really, I think the same era, the 1970s, saw federal public lands adopt wildlife land management as a goal. And that's been the saving grace for animals writ large, sort of the larger biodiversity ecosystem perspective has really relied on public lands. Um, In some ways, they're almost like giant zoos for animals and wildlife in the US. And there are reasons why we might think that those are important and good, but they're also not enough. Two thirds of the United States is privately owned. And so thinking about how to extend wildlife interests on that land is really important. Right. And one of the things that's kind of a underlying question here is what's special about animals that they deserve property ownership rights that maybe plants or minerals don't? Like some may ask like, oh, well, can't we just protect ecosystems collectively instead of privileging certain kind of species like animals within ecosystems? Well, it's a tricky thing to know where to draw the line, but the concluding chapter of the book, I say, you know, we're really, we're using animals as a placeholder for every living thing, because every argument that I make about why animals should have property is actually true of plants too. Like plants Mm -hmm. have territoriality. Plants were considered important in indigenous culture and law prior to the imposition of colonial law. Um, So I am actually not opposed to extending this proposal to plants specifically, but also to potentially natural objects. And in that way, I think it's really interesting because the rights of nature movement is directly linked to my work. I'm simply talking about property rights, the right to own and co-participate in markets and government and law for natural objects. And is part of the reason why it's easier, because I I struggle with some of these same things too, since I uh, write about animal rights. Um, And basically what I end up saying is, well, I'm privileging sentience. And the fact that if a lot of the privileges that we give to humans as a species is because we are a feeling thinking being, but we are an animal just like many other sentient animals who have those same traits. So sometimes there's not a good reason to limit some of uh, the rights just to the human species. So I don't know if that's also influencing you that like proper sh- property ownership right now is you know restricted to humans, but humans share so many um, affiliations um, with, with other animals since we all are animals. So is that kind of an easier connection to make than jumping to plants and like every single species on the planet? One thing that's been really fun in this project is the opportunity to engage with animal studies and animal law. Um, And sentience has been uh, such a cornerstone in that field. But I have to admit, um, although I appreciate the work, for me, that has never been the most compelling argument. 
um, in part because I've spent time, particularly growing up largely in nature, mm -hmm. around animals who aren't considered human-like and yet nevertheless are really intelligent. So one of the things that's exciting, I think, about this approach, which I see as a complement to existing animal law approaches, not displacing them, is that uh, by focusing on wildlife and specifically the territorial behavior of non-human animals, we find that animals at all of the limbs of the so-called tree of life are actually performing remarkably sophisticated property behaviors. Yeah. So chapter three unpacks how like bees and insects and ants and reptiles are doing pretty much the same behaviors as orcas and lions and humans when it comes to organizing and sharing space and resources, nonviolent dispute resolution, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So sort of a larger theme of this project, I think, is to question why we value human-like and whether in fact maybe humans are worse than many animals at certain things and we might be able to recategorize and understand on an ecosystem level in fact perhaps all living things have deep importance even if they're very unhuman-like. Yeah I really like that you're championing also the rights of um, all animals not just the charismatic megafauna or just the mammals who look more like us um, and recognizing that we've underestimated <laughs> so many other species. And so this kind of uh, gives them their due. Well, I wanted to ask also about what the solution is that you propose in the book, because I know that, or I'm imagining it can't exactly be the same thing as we have for humans, where only those of us with money or power get to buy or take the land. It would seem to need to be more like collective ownership and not individual ownership by the, you know, ants, like one ant or one <laughs> snake or whatever. And because with a lot of us with humans, it's one person could own tons and, you know, so much space, but we probably can't do it that way for animals in nature. So can you explain how the wildlife being property owners would work? Sure. There are lots of pragmatic concerns here. I think just as a threshold matter, uh, U.S. law for non-lawyers has this feature called a trust, which means that you can put property in a legal instrument that can be owned by someone who can't represent their own interests. So for example, most people or many people with children have trust uh, for their assets and they use those trusts to uh, hold the assets and all their children can make decisions for their own and a trustee can make decisions on behalf of the trust. And the thing that's really interesting is it's not just children who can use trust, it's also ships and corporations. So the idea of extending the right to own to non-human entities is not actually new. It's been around for hundreds of years. Mm. Um, so we're just simply saying, let's have animals as a potential beneficiary of a trust so that they own the land. And that accomplishes a lot of things, but the practical considerations are also there. Like, how do we know what the animal wants? Do we do it at a creature, species, or ecosystem level? Mm. And the answer in trust law is like, there's infinite variability and creativity within a few uh, certain rules. And so you could do it in a lot of ways, but I think the practical solution is you vest it at the ecosystem level and you have interdisciplinary human teams thinking about what makes sense from the animal perspective. Yeah, I like that. Get a bunch of experts together to think, because I, I also advocate for that, that when people might say, you know, when I've thought like, oh, you need to bring other animals in as news sources, for example, I've said like that we can figure out generally what is in the best interest of other animals, even if they cannot physically explain it to us just by paying more attention, you know, to what their needs are and, and their behaviors. 
Um, I was going to ask, like, you know, there's so much kind of nature conservancy type work being done. Is, is this a new concept, this idea of a trust? Is that not how the typical um, nature preserves work? So there are a lot of really good tools that are already in place, ranging from just um, like conservation easements are a really good example. Those can contain biological easements that are specific to animals, sometimes even named animals. And then there are also just histories of stewardship um, organized around indigenous governments or states sometimes who think that conservation is important, even private landowners who work for conservation um, and maintain their landscapes for animals to varying degrees. But what this accomplishes, uh, I think, is different in a variety of ways. The first and most important is that having formal legal rights matters so much when it comes to having your property taken away. Um, and we can see this throughout society. Um, over time, groups like women who historically didn't have property received a lot of protection through the ownership of property because they came under constitutional provisions um, that prohibit the government taking your property without compensation. And it also gets at this question of standing, which has been a question so long in animal law. Mm -hmm. Can animals be considered in court? Well, as soon as you are a legal property owner, you have a right to be heard on property issues. And so in that way, it creates these like dignity benefits and all of these things that actually matter quite a lot. Oh, that's a good explanation for the lay person, this notion of standing in the courts, because then you're a land owner. And now, can you give us a specific example of how this notion of property ownership by animals could work, maybe by focusing on a particular uh, species? Sure. Well, I have an example very close to home. Uh, so when I published the book, I decided it was time to put my money where my mouth is. And I live on a one acre lot in Arizona and in the real world, I share my lot with a quail, mini quail, road runner, <laughs> javelina, bobcat. This morning I saw a beautiful snake in wow. my driveway. Awesome. Um, <laughs> so there's like robust wildlife yeah. on my lot. But if you looked at the deed at the county recorder's office, it's my trust uh, that has it. It's only a human interest. And so I am in the process of working within existing statutes in Arizona with a good trust attorney to try to navigate how to create a perpetual interest for wildlife on my own land. And I think that's actually, I mean, it's symbolic to some degree, but it's also really meaningful to have something I personally can do. We're in this era where it feels like so hopeless and what do we do and how do we respond to these global problems? But if a lot of people individually were able to create trust interests for animals on their property, that would be a remarkable change. Yeah, that would be amazing. If you're just joining us on Radio Free Georgia, this is In Tune to Nature, and I'm host Carrie Freeman interviewing Karen Bradshaw and the Mary Sigler Fellow at Arizona State University and author of the book Wildlife as Property Owners, A New Conception of Animal Rights, published by University of Chicago Press. Her website is kmbradshaw.com. Um, Professor Bradshaw, can you also tell us about aquatic animals and how ownership of the seas and the marine areas would work for them, since we've been talking more up to now about you know, land instead of water or marine areas? You know, I think water and marine areas actually represent one of the most profound movements we could have in environmental law in our lifetime in a really achievable way. So let me tell you what I mean by that and why. 
a lot of the ocean is currently unowned. It's an area called high seas, which are international waters uh, that no one owns and to some degree everyone owns. And the United Nations currently has a commission with a very long name, I will not try and replicate, that is uh, managing or thinking about biodiversity preservation in the high seas. And they've met several times in the past few years trying to think about ways to allocate property-like interests in the ocean to different countries to prevent this problem of overfishing. And the animal property rights approach or wildlife property approach says, actually, you know, probably has an interest in the high seas that needs to be legally recognized are its occupants. Right. The creatures that are living in this body of water. And they right. stand right now, if some of these proposals are followed, to have their rights completely diminished, right? If they're allocated to countries, then the countries will have the rights and the animals won't. But if the UN takes this radical step, which I think is incredibly exciting and something that sort of the world could accomplish together of titling the high seas to animal interests, not exclusively, humans could still own them, they could right. still be allocated to countries, but just recognizing that animals have a right to be in the high sea, honestly, I think it would be the biggest environmental game change of our lifetime. There, it would have such a profound effect on biodiversity, human uses, et cetera. So I think the aquatic application may be potentially one of the most exciting applications of this idea. Wow. Um, and is there, some, is there a way that um, we could encourage the United Nations to do this? I don't know if there's some action item there, you know, like if they're actively in the process and need to hear from the public or we're too far away from that right now. I love that question, Carrie. Um, I do not have a specific thing in mind, um, but I promise that I will contact you and let you know an okay. answer and perhaps <laughs> you can share it with your listeners on Twitter yeah. um, because it is an idea that needs public support to get momentum. There are so many interests at play and animals very often don't have a voice. So having an opportunity for direct action, I think is so important. And I will find a way uh, to connect you and through extension, your listeners with that information. Thank you for asking that. Yeah. Um, I was also wondering, it sounds like, like we both mentioned um, colonial issues. Is some of your scholarship and your ideas influenced by post-colonial scholarship uh, some notion of like shared governance or communitarian principles? You know, one of the uh, legal pathways to get animal rights in the U.S. isn't actually having Congress enact any statutes or having states enact statutes. It's using this doctrine and property law uh, that was imported, as I said, from England that says that any law that was in place prior to, I believe the year is 12, Hundred is somewhere in that time frame, maybe 1290. Uh, any law that was in, in place prior to that time is valid today unless it's explicitly been extinguished. And it takes precedence over existing laws. It's called customary law or the customary law doctrine. Um, it's a very old British law, but it exists in the United States today. And I can imagine an argument where one could say there were hundreds, if not thousands, of indigenous governments in the United States that had laws that recognized humans as co-equal participants in a system of land and resource sharing with animals, plants, natural objects, and other living things. And that is actually a legal argument uh, that I think has a potential success, right? We do have this reliance on precedent and it is a common law approach. So I think there's both a very direct legal argument that's founded on 
privileging indigenous perspectives and legal systems. And then there's also sort of the modern rights of nature movement uh, where tribal governments in the United States today have rights of nature and animals have rights existing in pockets of the US today through indigenous efforts. So I do think that indigenous leadership and worldviews, both past and present, are informing this in really interesting and important ways. Yeah, I really like that. And it really makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I was going to ask you if any of our listeners are interested in getting involved with advocating for property rights of wildlife, what are some things they can do? I mean, one of the ideas is like if they own land, they could try to um, create a trust, like you're saying. But so you can either explain that a little bit more, or maybe you have some other ideas of what um, the average person uh, in the United States could do. Absolutely. So I think a couple of ideas. One is if you were a landowner, whether you have a very large piece of land or a very small piece of land, uh, that you're interested in putting in trust for animals. And that doesn't mean humans can't use it. It means that animals have interests. Uh, you can either look through an attorney, and I should be clear, I'm not an attorney. I'm not able to provide legal advice, but they should hire an attorney or work with an attorney to see what the options are. One might be an animal interest in the trust. I'm not personally familiar with Georgia state pet trust law, but that's an opportunity and an avenue in some states. Or doing a biological assessment and giving the easement to an organization that is owned by animals. The other thing to say is this is such a rapidly growing and innovating field. I am on the phone on a nearly daily basis with different NGOs and environmental organizations and thought leaders who are thinking about ways to implement this. So I think there will be more to do on a social level going forward with some of the existing leadership in the conservation movement to retitle some lands that are currently held in conservation easements, specifically in animal trust. Um, so as those evolve, I am on Twitter and I have a website that I'll share in a moment, and I will constantly be posting new opportunities as those grow. My Twitter is at KM underscore Bradshaw, and the address for this book, the website for this book is wildlifeispropertyowners.com. The other thing I should say is that if any of your listeners are doing innovative, cool things for wildlife or have ideas, I'm a big believer in crowdsourcing and the wisdom of crowds and that people have very different forms of um, intelligence that are all equally important and valuable and that we need them all. So I've heard amazing ideas from people across the United States in ways that they are currently doing things to benefit animals. And I would love to hear from your listeners on Twitter or elsewhere if they want to post what they're doing and tag me. I just really enjoy seeing those and highlighting some of the things that people are already doing. Yeah, I love that idea. And again, her, her, um, her Twitter handle is at KM under, underscore Bradshaw. Um, and then the website I've been doing saying the kmbradshaw.com, but you said there is a wildlife as property owners.com. Is that right? Yes. And you can okay. get to one from the other. kmbradshaw.com is my personal website. It has all of my publications available for free for download, except for the book. That one I cannot give away for free, right. but <laughs> lots of good free information if someone's not in a position to purchase the book. And then also wildlife as property owners is specific to the book. And it contains lots of podcasts and video, uh, book talks, et cetera, that may be interesting if people want to hear more. Okay, that's great. 
Well, that's the end of our show, but I want to thank you, Professor Karen Bradshaw, for being with us on Radio Free Georgia's In Tune to Nature program and for everything you do to advocate for the rights of non-human animals with whom we share the planet. Right back at you, Carrie. I am so impressed by you and your work and Georgia Public Radio. I think you are phenomenal, and I'm so delighted to be on today. Thank you for having me. Oh, thanks. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to In Tune to Nature broadcasting every Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time online at wrfg.org and on Atlanta radio station 89.3 FM. We post action items, news, and podcasts on the show's website, facebook.com backslash nature. The views and opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of WRFG, its board staff, or volunteers. I'm one of those volunteers. I'm host Carrie Freeman, asking you to please support independent, non-commercial media like Radio Free Georgia. And remember to take care of yourself and others, including other species. Thank you for listening. Cheers.